and welcome to the first episode of Season 2 of Sparks of Madness. Um, we're back after a long break. A uh, couple of apologies. First of all, apologies for the long break. Um, no real reason for it apart from me procrastinating for a long time over the summer. Um, it's been months and months since we put an episode out and that's been partly due to my own mental health, partly due to being busy, partly due to just not being asked. really. Uh, sometimes happens. Uh, but now back on it. So... Thank you for your patience and sorry for the delay. Um, another apology is to um, the brilliant comedian Alex Leem. Um, before um, this big break, I did actually record a lengthy episode with Alex that I was planning to put out as a double episode, a two-parter. Um, and when I came to edit it recently, after months and months of dither and delay, uh, I couldn't find it. It wasn't in the cloud, it wasn't on my laptop, it wasn't on the account uh, platform that I record the podcasts on, couldn't find it anywhere. So I'm really sorry to Alex, he basically spent nearly two hours chatting to me, um, and we had a really good conversation, and it's lost forever in the annals of time, so apologies to Alex. have spoken to him and passed on my apologies and committed to doing another episode, he's willing to do another one, which is great, and if, uh, if you're not uh, someone who's familiar with Alex Leem, do look him up, he's fantastic. But on to this episode, uh, first episode of the second series, um, recorded... Um, just last week or a week and a half ago, um, is the fantastic comedian Kevin Dewsbury, um, who um, has been a comedian for well over a decade um, and relatively early in his professional um, stand-up career had a real mental health crisis. Um, And we talked to him, or I talked to him about that, um, and we will hear about um, various things, uh, what it's like to be married to someone you're in a double act with, which has happened recently for him, but also going back in time, what uh, what it's like to be institutionalised because of your mental health and what it's like to actually have a, a psychotic episode, um, which is what happened to him um, and, and how he's then turned that into meaningful comedy on stage. Um, so it's a really good episode, I think, to start a second series. Thanks for listening. Thanks for coming back. If you're new to the podcast, this is just an opportunity for me as a relatively new stand-up comedian um, to speak with other comics in the industry who have had some kind of mental health issues about how the comedy works with their mental health and vice versa. So I hope you enjoy it. If you do and you haven't listened to other episodes, go back and listen to those. And if you do enjoy it, please comment, like, subscribe, share, all of that jazz. Um, thanks and enjoy the episode with Kevin Dewsbury. <laughs> to episode 26 of Sparks of Madness after a really long gap of about six months, which is only due to me being basically a bit of a lazy prick and not being asked to do it uh, for one reason or another. Um, we'll call it a summer holiday, even though it was six months. Uh, I'd like to welcome uh, the guest to, I suppose, what we'll call season two of Sparks of Madness, which is Kevin Dewsbury. Hi, Kevin. How are you doing? Hello. I'm not so bad. Thank you, Graham. So I'm in Dewsbury and you are Dewsbury, which is uh, um, the first time that's happened on the pod and probably the last. So um, <laughs> so how has uh, the last 18 months or two years or however long it is of COVID treated you? We'll start off with that one. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, like everyone, it's uh, been very strange times, time of reflection, uh, time of working out what uh, you sort of, well, 
sort of a reset button, isn't it? In a way, I think I can't remember who was it. Who was it? Who said it originally? But as if like um, you know, uh, you you turn the turn off and on um, button, like the first rule of IT, mm. uh, and then hopefully it all resets. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the main thing that um, I got on with uh, <clears throat> over lockdown was getting married. Congratulations! Uh, thank you. <laughs> with uh, my. Well, obviously my partner, but she's also my comedy partner, uh, Bexy Archer. Uh, we're still not sure whether she's taking my name yet, but I think Bexy Dewsby sounds cute, but she's already established as Bexy Archer. So You might have to check as well. There might be a few people around here who are known as Bexy Dewsbury that you might not want to be associated <laughs> with. But, um, and you, yeah, you're part of a double act. Is, is, would you call it a double act? It's called your dad's mum, the, the yeah. show that you do. Is it? I mean, there are um, sort of hallmarks of a... Uh, traditional double act there in the stuff that we do uh, in our show but um, it's, it's more of a sort of writing partnership yeah you know and we uh, we write for each other and feed off uh, each other's you know we're quite giving as performers I like to think and because we know each other so well that's why we work together uh, well on stage I hope that reflects. Anyway, it has done in the reviews so far. Yeah, I've read, right? I, I was I was doing. I actually did a tiny bit of research for this one, which is unusual for me because I normally just wing it. Um, but I thought I'd have a look, and, and some of the reviews. I think one of them actually almost confet, weirdly compared you to Vic and Bob, who I don't think have ever had a romantic relationship. But no, um, yeah. So that sort of, I suppose <laughs> the style maybe a little bit uh, alternative. Um, you know, but that's, it's interesting. The question that immediately sprung to mind with me uh, when you when you said you're married to someone on the circuit is does that mean that you have no limits about the the, the depths to which you can plumb your your own life for material because I know that in my situation routinely my wife and kids if something funny happens in the house or in the family it, it's immediately run through some sort of filter of what I can and can't then write about or talk about on stage and normally <laughs> it ends up being you can't fucking say that on stage <laughs> so, do you have that filter? Do you still have things that you you agree that are off limits? Um, I think with us, because we're very open, uh, you know, and especially in the sort of shows that I've done in the past that have been quite sort of revealing, like bearing my soul, if you like, the, the show that I did about my own mental health uh, and also one about my sexuality, because I do, I do identify as bisexual, despite the mm-hmm. fact that I'm married to <coughs> Bexy, but... Uh, um, in my, you know, whatever, anything goes really in what, what we say. Uh, you know, we like to explore boundaries of, um, by the way, I'm talking about material, not nothing else. I just explore boundaries of, um, you know, just, just, well, let me explain this a bit easier. Bexy has no scruples when it comes to uh, saying certain things. And uh, I know, obviously, with this podcast, I'm the, I'm the guest, I'm aware I'm talking about and my wife and her act at the moment. She, she, uh, it, it's quite unexpected some of the things that come out of her mouth when she's on stage. You don't expect it because she's got this very sort of um, cute demeanour about her. Uh, and uh, some of the things she says is all very clever, but mm. uh, some could be said, oh, really? I can't believe she just said that. But she doesn't look like the, the type, you know, she looks like a children's presenter, but the subject matter can sometimes be a little bit like, oh, okay, didn't expect that. <laughs> so we do... Um, Anything really goes. I mean, there are just a few like very, very uh, minuscule personal things. Just think, yeah, can't really say that on stage, yeah. but that's for everyone, I think. Yeah, yeah, everyone yeah. has some sort of limit. I just guess yours are a little bit more broader than everybody else's. Yeah, so but- you've been performing for 
over 15 years, is that right? Uh, in terms of comedy, yeah. I mean, the problem is, uh, well, not the problem, but <laughs> when I was at school, the only way I really felt of expressing myself was through performing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, acting drama classes, and I was always involved in the uh, drama society, if you like, the school productions, and also um, Amdram in my local village and town. Yeah. Uh, and it went from there, really. And <clears throat> I was determined that I wanted to be a full-time professional actor. That's all uh, I wanted to do. Um, now, this past 18, 20, 20 months, whatever it is, uh, obviously the only time in my life where suddenly those people who said get a pro- proper job uh, might have been right because mm. well, <laughs> I, I had to for a very short period. Um, so... I do, do look back and think, you know, maybe I could have pursued uh, other avenues, but hindsight is a wonderful thing, isn't it? I've always just, uh, you know, that's where I am my most happiest is when I'm performing. Or The way I look at it is that I'm, well, hopefully nine times out of ten, bringing joy to other people. You know, it's not because sometimes, as I'm sure you know, comedians, performers, it's a quite an egotistical uh, life, you know, to get up on stage and say, right, this is me, especially when it's stuff that you've written and created yourself to say, look, this is me. I think this is really good. You should think this is really good because I've worked really hard on this. And then when they don't, you think, oh, well, you're talking rubbish. You've got no idea. Or like, why don't you enjoy this? Uh, whereas, <laughs> to be honest, it comes from um, when I was a kid. Uh, being at places like Butlins, <laughs> believe it or not, um, with my grandma and granddad, and I just saw all the people being entertained by whatever was going on, you know, and pantomimes as well as a kid, and thinking, I want to be the person on the stage doing that to make yeah. these people laugh, to make these people have big smiles on their faces. So that's where it, you know, it does come from a uh, a place of goodwill. But sometimes, you know, as I say, and me personally as well, your ego can get carried away and you're thinking like, why aren't I doing that gig? Why aren't I doing this? Why isn't this going correct in my career? Uh, so that's, you know, bring, bringing the mental health aspect into it. Yeah. But what I'm trying to say is that, like, I try not to lose sight of it and realise that's what, you know, is the reason why I perform. So, yeah, um, I went to drama school in the early 2000s. Um, and from there, I got a little bit cynical about the acting world because, uh, you know, it, you, you, you read these romantic visions of like what it's like, you know, oh, oh you go to, these in the days just before the internet. <laughs> yeah. You go, you go to the big smoke in London, you know, everyone runs away there and, uh, you know, there's no Facebook or anything like that. It was just, yeah. just starting a few years later. And then um, you sort of leave your sort of past life behind and then, you sign up with a big agent and then you get a part in a theatre show in the West End and then the TV sitcom comes along. And obviously, life isn't like that for everybody. No. Uh, so it was either struggling in fringe theatre for several years and hoping to get some sort of break. Uh, but I discovered the stand-up comedy scene whilst I was down in London. Um, I actually, not a lot of people really actually know this, but um, I worked very briefly at Jongler's Camden um, as part of the uh, bar staff. Only for about six months, maybe even less than that, to be honest. But um, I got to see so many comedians um, yeah. whilst, you know, caught snippets of their acts. And these are people like uh, Andy Parsons, Reg D. Hunter, uh, Daniel Kitson, Jimmy Carr, uh, to name but a few, you know, before they were 
well-known comics. Yeah, when they were still um, traveling on the way up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so see, seeing them work in those tough jungles rooms, because these, these were the days as well where they had the late show as well. So the, the early show would be something like 8 o'clock, and then all of a sudden it was some of the great idea. I mean, it, it seemed to make sense back then, you know, on the back end of the 90s, that, uh, oh, yeah, we'll start a show at midnight. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good idea. I can only it might have been a bit of a bear pit. Yeah, I remember uh, Steve Gribbin, uh, you know, the musical comedian, uh, one particular night, uh, there was just his table at the back being utter pricks, just like banging pint glasses on the table, just just heckling before he's even got a word out. And, uh, you know, he managed to get the whole room to tell him to fuck off. Just this, <laughs> this sheer uh, I don't, I don't bear pit of a, of a gig. Yeah. And then I was just thinking, yeah, I want to be part of this. Of still. I don't know why. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but okay. it's not great for your mental health either. If, uh, you know, you're on the... <laughs> if you don't, if you can't deal with that sort of room, when you're it's interesting you mentioned Jim room. Carroll. Actually, I've just finished. I'm going to say I read his book, but I didn't. I listened to his book and audio book while I was walking the dog over a period of about a week. And I don't know if you've you've heard about it or or, or had a copy or anything. But it's um, I think it's called before before and laughter. I think it's called. Um, mm. But it's sort of half self help, half memoir. And he he talks about, and I think you sort of, you've touched on it there the the weirdness of being the one person in the room facing the wrong way, which is what we are when we're performing. And when you talk about, um, you mentioned about drama school and and acting. And I actually did a, a theatre studies degree and had aspirations of going down the the theatre route at one point around a similar sort of time to you. Actually, I graduated in two thousand and one, um, and then I just I turned my back on it. And part of the reason was of how. I found it a really kind of false industry, a lot of sycophancy and a lot of, mm-hmm. I suppose, lovey is the phrase, but a lot of people that would just blow smoke up your ass in the hope of that. There is still some of that in comedy, but the difference is that, for me anyway, when you're on, when you're on, there's nothing false about it. You are on your own. You are you. You're stripped bare. And oh, yeah. kind of you sink or swim on your own merits, I suppose. So uh, it was interesting to me that you mentioned Jimmy Khan because obviously, you know, all that far back he was not a household name, he was on his way up and he had a relatively quick rise. Um, yeah. But he's had his own issues with, with mental health as well and a lot of what you said there chimes with some of the stuff he said in the book. So I'd recommend anyone with an interest in in this area to to pick it, to grab a copy. Um, the other thing um, you've mentioned about um, performing from a young age, I've just listened to, I shouldn't, I mean, it's not, I can't really call it a rival podcast because I get, um, very very few listeners. I get about fifty to sixty listeners. But um, Joe, James O'Brien does has a weekly podcast. He's an LBC radio presenter, and he had this week um, Joe Tresini on, who's Joe Pasquale's son, and has been oh, performing yes. on stage since he was a toddler, basically. And he was talking about that aspect of it, having started so young, almost really suppose not being given a choice because because of who your dad is, and your dad thinks you've got something, so he gets you on stage to do a bit at the end of his show or whatever. Yeah, he only really ever felt at home on stage, mm-hmm. ever. Yeah, and and it's and it's clearly something where listening to him and listening to other comedians I've talked to, there's something about not every comedian, but a lot, an awful lot, lot of comedians have this thread running through where sometimes the time when they feel most at home, most alive, most um, accepted is weirdly in a room full of strangers talking about sometimes the most innermost secrets of their life. So. Yeah, I think sometimes. Sorry, sorry to interrupt there. I I was just on that point. Um, I think sometimes it's easier to tell a room of strangers your innermost thoughts than uh, 
your close mm. personal friends and family. I mean, it shouldn't be, especially with, with your friends. I mean, there's some members of your family, obviously, that you, you, you know. <laughs> just well, to, Your thoughts might be about them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, it's a different relationship, isn't mm. it? But like mm. uh, strangers can judge, but then you're never going to see them again. You know, I yeah. mean, obviously, again, we live in these days of social media. So if you're more of a household name, you'll obviously get responses to, to things that may have well been said. But really, I mean, again, it's an old adage that uh, stand-up comedy can be seen as therapy uh, for, you know, a comedian can bear their innermost thoughts and secrets and stuff and uh, feel better about it. But it's the idea now, I believe, is to get people to relate to and laugh along rather than, you know, the old sort of idea of like, oh, the depressed, uh, addicted comedian uh, talking about his sad, terrible life uh you know and it going oh isn't this amusing because this will never happen to me but i think what the thing is it's now it's um because we're now talking about mental health so much mm. is people can relate to those dark moments so much more or or they admit to themselves sometimes when they hear a comedian talk about it going oh shit yeah i've had those thoughts as well mm. uh, so so it is sort of more normalized now to talk about these things which of course is great mm. uh but yes so in t- i mean in terms of your history um i know a little bit about it but obviously i don't want to put words in your mouth but my understanding is that you were just getting ready um to take a show to edinburgh in 2008 when you had um effectively a breakdown and and didn't go and and then is that is that pretty much the right timeline right sort of series of events so yeah um i was doing a solo show in 2008 I tried to do a solo show a few years earlier as well, and for, for various reasons, it just never worked out. There was always uh, focus in other areas of my life, like relationships and, and family and uh, moving house and living in London, which obviously is a very stressful thing to do, and like earning enough money through the circuit, etc. Uh, I'd been full-time since 2004, but even that, the, the focus of me taking a debut show to Edinburgh, which back then was the thing that could have launched a comedian's career and has done for several, uh, just never really happened for me. So in then 2008, um, it was actually self-produced, the show. It wasn't with um, an agency. Uh, and I think that pressure got to me because doing Edinburgh is a very, very stressful thing, um, even though I had two previous experiences in compilation shows. Um, but also... I'd got married a couple of years previous and we'd moved to a new house and like, you know, the mortgage was more expensive and uh, just a lot of pressure in all various areas. And I also had been struggling for many years without me realising that that was the actual issue because I'd just put it to the back of my mind with my sexuality Um, because I was married to a woman Mm -hmm. and I'd never said anything to her about like oh you know um there might be a chance that uh, i also am attracted to men uh because it was something that i'd just cast aside and thought well it's not actually true because mm. you know it's confusing because with being bisexual it's um it is a confusing time uh you know every day is confusing being a bisexual <laughs> to be honest yeah. uh, you know just like 
I felt betrayed when Jack Grealish went to Man City. But anyway, that's another thing. Um, <laughs> his calves. Everyone makes up his calves. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I didn't know why I was having a breakdown. didn't know I was having a breakdown. I'd not, not experienced uh, a mental health issue before. Um, except briefly in the year 2000, which I might come back to. Um, but this was a full-on breakdown. Um not but not being able to sleep, uh, just becoming a bit of a gibbering wreck, uh, not really making much sense, um, and hallucinating quite a bit and having thoughts that weren't true, um, and in the end, because I hadn't had any regular appointments with a GP because I was gigging like five times a week and uh, just that was the priority, you know, and didn't realise there was a health issue. Um, hadn't registered with a GP um, near where we were living in London. So when I got taken into the hospital, um, they thought I had an infection, possibly. So they're doing various tests for some sort of infection, you know, like a water infection. I don't know whether you've ever experienced anyone with a water infection. Yeah, yeah it affects it older really people. Yeah, so <clears throat> um, a few of my older relatives have had water infections, and um, I think the way it works is obviously we're, we're 80% water, so it affects your whole body and your and your brain yeah. and your thought patterns and just end up talking absolute bizarre things. So it was a very similar thing. So we were testing me for a similar sort of infection to that and other things. Found nothing and then realised that, well, not realised, but diagnosed that uh, I might well be depressed. Uh, so I got carted off to a, uh, well, I say carted off. It's not really the uh, <laughs> right thing to say. Got, got taken very nicely in an ambulance to the... Um, uh, mental health ward right. in North London. Um, but I didn't know what was going on the whole time because obviously I was suffering from uh, psychosis. Yeah. Um, so I had no idea that I'd been diagnosed as uh, psychotic, which sounds very scary. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you're running around supermarkets in America with a chainsaw yeah. wearing a hockey mask, but uh, that's not the reality. The reality is that um, it just affects your thoughts and all five of your senses. So... I can tell you various examples of what was happening. So basically, I was sat up in my hospital bed, uh, which was a separate room off the corridor because I was that ill. Yeah. Uh, and had no idea what time of day it was. It could have been midnight, could have been 7 a.m., could have been any time of day. But I, but I had no concept throughout when all this was happening of what was real and what wasn't. And various people kept popping into the room. Now, whether they were all real, whether they weren't, I just don't know. Because <laughs> I remember at one point, um, the whole medical team allegedly came into the room. So like about 14 people <laughs> all stood at the end of my bed. And uh, one of the nurses says, Kevin, this is the medical team that's going to heal you. I don't really think people are that, um, you know, uh, not occupied enough. What's the phrase I'm looking for? I don't think um, 14 people working on the front line of the NHS are that free to just pop yeah. into the room and do that. Uh, so you still one... think that might be a false memory of... Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, I'd done... Um, the previous weekend, I'd done uh, a weekend in Glasgow uh, performing comedy with um, a few comics. One who happened to be Dave Johns. Do you know Dave Johns? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and this is before he did his film. Uh, yeah, the, for the overnight <laughs> success of however many yeah. decades, yeah. And um, and I, I've, I've known Dave for years, and I just remember 
um, falling asleep and picturing that Dave was at the end of the bed as well. And he, and he was just like, as if he was saying to me, right, all you did is go to Glasgow and get a bit pissed. That's all that happened. It was a laugh. <laughs> and then <laughs> I just remember waking up thinking, where's Dave gone? But then <laughs> um, two comedians, Mick Ferry and Nick Rebel, actually came to visit me. Um, because I lived very near Nick and, and Mick had uh, been a very good friend. Um, we did Big Value in 2004, back in the day. Uh, and I just remember them being at the end of the bed and Mick going just in his proper sort of olden way, you'll be all right, mate, you'll be all right. Um, but that was definitely true, um, yeah. as it was clarified afterwards. Uh, now, I'm going to be, this is, I have talked about this on stage, all of this as well, but this is the one thing I know is definitely not true, but at the time seems so real. Um, so a, they have these volunteers, I believe, if we've got that right, or they did have, yeah. um, of people that come in and sit with patients who are vulnerable, who, um, you know, just need someone to sit with them uh, throughout the night and then they can, you know, speak to medical staff if, if it's needed to, like, give them a break because basically I was, like, pressing the uh, nurse button every like five minutes at one stage because I just didn't know what was going on. Um, obviously, they're all CRB checked these days. Um, now, this one particular uh, chap who was sat with me one night, I remember just saying to him, I'm a homosexual, I'm gay. And he kept saying, oh, don't say this, don't say this, you know, because uh, he knew that I was married, he'd met my yeah. wife and stuff like that. So don't say this, don't say this, you, you can't say this, etc." And then fast forward a little bit, and my mum and dad actually came to visit. Um, they'd come down from Cheshire. Uh, and there was a menu, like that, um, you know, the hospital menu where you choose the food that you want. And obviously, I wasn't capable of doing that. So my mum and dad were choosing the food for me, uh, which I thought was poisoned, obviously, because it was yeah. psychotic. Uh, but the, the dessert um, option was a piece of fruit on this particular day, and it was a banana. Now, as I say, psychosis affects all five of your senses. And you know when like a banana's slightly whiffy? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I could just smell this banana, this quite overpowering smell of banana. And like I sort of woke up and my dad was sort of sat there um, looking at me. And there was this table, the, you know, the table that goes across the hospital bed and there was a banana on it. And I remember waking up, seeing my dad and seeing this banana. And I said to my dad, Dad, could you move that banana? And he was like, yeah, why? Well, because it's making me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> so what I actually envisaged was happening, which wasn't because I've clarified this, <laughs> was that the person, the volunteer who I'd been saying I'm gay, I'm homosexual to, had mentioned this to my parents. And then, this is not available on the NHS, by the way, but uh, my parents were given a banana. This is what I envisaged. <laughs> and uh, were asked to test whether... I enjoyed the presence of the banana or the banana being moved towards my bottom area, which I right. believed that my dad was doing. Now, obviously, he wasn't. <laughs> the father's love normally only goes so far. Precisely. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it was just though, it was like, we didn't have sleep. And like, you know, that, those moments of like, did he call it sleep dysmorphia? That when like, you're sort of like, you think you're awake, but you're actually not, you're asleep. Yeah. I just remember this image of my dad picking up the banana and trying to like... Um, <laughs> 
move it towards my rectal area, let's say. But then every time... Is this with your dad since? <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> he, he's quite embarrassed by this. Uh... <laughs> when I bring... In fact, I'm seeing him this afternoon. I don't think I'll mention it again, though, because we're going to the pub. You take him a big bunch of bananas. <laughs> But um, yeah, just just remember that like every time that I thought that he was actually doing this action is that like I'd suddenly wake up and go, what are you doing? And he's like, nothing. And the banana would still be there. Yeah. And then eventually my mum picked up the banana and was like, Kevin, the banana's been put away now in a bag, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yes, that... so, so how long were you, I mean, I don't want to use the phrase institutionalised, I suppose, but how long were you kind of under 24-7 care like that? Um. So I think it was the end of March, start of April. Uh, I always have to say this out loud so I can remember. And I think it was only about three weeks, which included mm-hmm. a week at the actual hospital and then I moved to the mental health ward. So I was there for about 10 days, two weeks, mm-hmm. um, I think. Uh, but again, all very hazy. And when I got there, um, well, I'll tell you, because it is uh, interesting how the mind works, but... Before I had this, I used to have this line which uh, now I don't don't use. But um, I was on stage in Glasgow. I remember I was using that line. You know, there's this old sort of it's a little bit hack of the comedian coming on stage and saying, "Oh, you know who I look like? I look a little bit like these celebrities yeah. or whatever." So at the time, I had uh, I was wearing glasses on stage. I was beardless and my hair was slightly longer and swept to one side, and I had this look of. Um, Dennis Nielsen, the serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, um, I mean, it wasn't exact, you know, it was just a very silly throwaway joke. Enough to, yeah. 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 So I used to say like, uh, oh, I know what uh, you're all thinking. Oh, he looks like a homosexual serial killer. Uh, so that line was in my head um, whilst I was in hospital. And, you know, this whole like, art reflecting real life and vice versa of me thinking, because the psychosis was telling me that all this stuff was true. Uh, that like, um, oh no, that's not a line that you said on stage. You are a homosexual serial killer. <laughs> Don't worry, I've checked. It's fine. I've got a DBS. It's clear. But um, I went for an MRI scan, and I thought that um, it was a mind reading machine because you know MR stands for mind reading. I don't know what the oh, stands yeah. for. Oh, logical, uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. That's how you know. You know, the comedic brain as well. Like looks for like duality and words and things mm. like that and i think it was like that sort of thing instead of me finding the comedy and the funny in things i was being suspicious of everything uh so jumping to conclusions that weren't even there so i was going through this uh mind reading machine as i thought it were and i remember my wife saying to me at the time uh, right just relax when you go through and keep your keep your mind clear uh which he probably didn't say um because obviously the moment someone says that to you you're thinking it's a bit like you know in ghostbusters when yeah. uh, Dan Aykroyd's character thinks of the Stay Puffed Man. <laughs> yeah. So I was going through the mind reading machine, and all I thought as I came out was, came out the other side was, I'm a homosexual serial killer. And then what I thought was, on the printout, that the medical staff looked at it and it said, Kevin is a homosexual serial killer. <laughs> right, we best cart him off to the uh, secure ward. That's what I thought <laughs> happened, even though it yeah. didn't. Um, so then we went off in the ambulance. Um, the ambulance, you know, just not on not using its blues and twos let's say uh and um it was in north london so it was in uh the archway area was hospital whittington hospital and they took me up to edgware um because i was living in the barnet area um that's why it was so far away 
Um, so uh, I remember going up the Highgate Hill and um, I saw a Jesus figure at the side of the road um, with a, a sign saying the end is nigh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I thought at one stage I was actually controlling the ambulance with like, a, you know, like a, an Xbox or um, PlayStation control pad. Right, okay. Uh, but this is generally true. This bit is. Um, on the radio, the actual song that was playing was Highway to Hell. <laughs> That's going to help. <laughs> exactly. So I get to uh, the mental ward and it was a really sunny day, a uh, really sort of warm April. And I remember thinking that I was abroad somewhere uh, or, or that maybe that I was joining some sort of like army barracks. It was just all very bizarre, like different thoughts flunk, flunk, from moment to moment. And then when I got in, I thought I was in a computer game. And then it all went from there. And then I ended up having to share a room with uh, two other people. Uh, and one of the main issues of why, well, not why I had a breakdown, but the, one of the main catalysts to the breakdown was the fact that I couldn't sleep. So I went from a room at a hospital, and I'm not saying, obviously, that <laughs> the NHS is going to do so much, mm. um, that you know they, they couldn't keep me in that room anymore. There was someone more needy of that bed, of course. Mm-hmm. But the fact is I couldn't sleep. Uh, so I'd got a, a bit more sleep at the hospital and then I moved to the mental ward sharing it with two other people and then couldn't sleep even yeah, more. And those two other people have obviously had their own issues that were yes. handed off to yeah, put yeah. them in the place in the first place, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is that everyone's got different mental health issues. So, um, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's a very difficult problem. But, you know, it's not as if we were all like just all shoved into like a big room or like you know like 30 of us or whatever and just left her own devices but i mean it made you think that that might have been well it definitely is what would have happened way back in victorian times mm. before that like you know you carted off to like uh, the bethlehem prison uh and that's where the insane asylum stories come from uh, yeah i mean most people would have an image probably of something like one floor of the cuckoo's nest yes where you, you've got people catatonic and or, or people ranting and, and sort of you know raving and whatever, and, and it, it's probably quite different from that. But was it? Did you did you find that it was like a scary experience at first? Was that was that probably the most overriding feeling? Or it was, but again, like the feelings um, uh, fluctuated between like being scared to being excited to mm. being intrigued because you know it was this weird state of because I didn't know what was going on still, but I was more lucid. Yeah. Um I was like just just wandering around this bizarre <laughs> place with all these different personalities and I actually and you have your own theories of why you're there and what's going on and I thought that I was in um purgatory. Mm. Uh which you know it, it could well have been a metaphor actually for um mm. Mm. all sorts of different personalities with their own different uh, mental health issues. Uh, there was one chap as well um, who he was Jewish and he actually thought that he was the Jewish Messiah uh, because, you know, I don't, I'm not completely au fait with uh, Judaism, but I believe that the Jewish Messiah uh, has never actually um, arrived mm-hmm. as yet. So he believed he was the Jewish Messiah. Now, on that point, I remember as well when I was back in the actual hospital, whether or not the nurse actually said this to me, she probably didn't was that, um, Kevin, you need to stop doing all this son of the devil stuff. 
uh, and then that again stayed in my head and you know I'd seen the omen as a kid mm. and uh, decided that uh, I was possibly the son of the devil so when I met this chap who was the Jewish messiah <laughs> yeah. oh that's, that's yeah. weird <laughs> we had a few fundamental discussions you know <laughs> about religion and all sorts uh, but it it felt because <laughs> I was I was brought up as a Catholic, so you know I've, <laughs> I've got some knowledge. Uh, we sat there and talked quite a lot. Uh, I would have loved to have a recording of it, but I don't think that was available. Um, so in that situation, then, because I've not, I've, I, I mean, I, I had my own breakdown, but compared to yours, it was a relatively um, tame one in terms of the impact. I suppose I was never sort of um, sectioned or anything like that. In that moment, do you, or did you, I suppose, did you think you were like the only sane guy in the room? Or did you look at other people and did you, did you judge those other people as being like, I'm in a room full of nutters or whatever, want a bit of a phrase? Um, or did you think we're all ill? I'm one of these ill people. I mean, what's the, the process there? Um, again, just confusion, to be mm. honest. Uh, it was only later on when I was actually, I don't know whether the word is released from mm. there. I thought I was taken out there too early, to be honest, but um, I was still suffering from psychosis when I was, you know, still hallucinating and having right. terrible thoughts. Uh, so the whole time I was in there, uh, no, I wasn't thinking that everyone was mad or everyone mm. was, you know, because I, I still didn't know what was going on. <laughs> you were still having a hard enough time distinguishing reality from fiction in yes. your own head. Yeah, like yeah. you know, uh, again, like different feelings and thoughts. Like, I kept thinking that uh, maybe I was in prison, uh, yeah. and that I had committed some sort of crimes that I wasn't aware of. Yeah. Uh, uh, again, maybe this was like heaven or hell's waiting room. Yeah. Um, yeah. People were robots. It was all a wind up. It was a reality TV show. You know, uh, one one stage, I actually thought that I was smuggling drugs into the uh, hospital for the staff and. Uh, other inmates if you like um yeah. <laughs> i mean i actually said this on stage last night but um the one <laughs> not recommending this either uh for if anyone has any mental health issues to actually say that this is going to cure you but this was one way of me setting my foot on the path to recovery um i hadn't actually showered or bathed for about four days whilst i was there yeah. um but i hadn't realized uh, and also because, you know, I was suffering depression as well. Uh, and I've been through uh, depression since. That, of course, it's very difficult to do what's considered normal things like yeah, getting up and having a shower and all that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, yeah, my, um, my own hygiene was somewhat lacking. So my wife actually had to, like, um, you know, tell the staff, look, he needs a shower. If he can't, if he's not capable, he needs to be taken to a bath or a shower now again i wasn't wasn't uh, civvy to this chat and hadn't realized this was going on uh, so i was taken to this uh, bathroom and the uh the orderly if you like the, the steward i don't really know uh, what the phrase would be but he um took me there and he, and he put a towel on the floor and uh, pointed at it and said in there uh now he, what he meant was put your dirty clothes in there and they'll take mm. them away to be washed. But in my head, what had been happening is over the past few days is that I'd been swallowing drugs in um, a condom, which I'd probably seen on a movie 
in order for it not to digest into my system and uh, I needed to actually get it out of my system. So when he put the towel on the floor, I thought now is the opportunity no. to get it out of my system. So I actually did a massive poo into the towel, <laughs> wrapped it up and then handed it to him. <laughs> I shouldn't. I mean, it, it is uh, <laughs> in context that'd have been horrific. But oh, it was. It was. Then, but but it seemed to make so much sense until this moment where I wrapped it up like a sort of Thornton's gift bag, handed it to him uh, like through the door. He said thank you, and then there was this little pause because obviously he just thought it was a bundle of dirty clothes. And then this this voice from the other side of the door went, "Oh my god, he's got shit everywhere!" Um, and then he just opened the door, looked at me, he went, "Why did you do that?" And I just went. Oh, uh, I thought that's what I was supposed to do. Um, and then in that moment, <laughs> I suddenly realised, that's not right, is it? Um, you had a, a slight moment of clarity. Yeah, uh, what yeah. you're going to do. So, yeah, if anyone's listening, um, that's not the key. But <laughs> it was for me. So, um, you know. Impulsive, uh, of course, is, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it's not, it's not my proudest moment, but I think that just shows you that how fragile and ridiculous the mind can be oh, my, oh yeah absolutely and it's funny you mentioned about um a lot of the imagery that was going on in your mind would be from kind of popular culture everyday culture or whatever the you know the sort of the the theories spinning around in your head will have been kind of not subliminally implanted but things that are just from memories of things you've seen or heard or or what have you it's the mind is a weird it's a wonderful thing but it is a, a very fragile thing at times and it's bizarre so fast forwarding a bit then yeah Obviously, this is something you're comfortable. You're clearly comfortable talking about it to me. You've talked about it on stage to strangers. Did you? Am I right in thinking you actually did a show about your breakdown? Is that right? Yeah, I did. Um, this was back in 2012. Um, I called it insane. Yeah. Uh, as in the idea that uh, you know it's called Kevin Dewsbury insane. Is in like, is the show called sane, or yeah. is he insane? Anyway, that was the thinking behind it. Um, and it was, yeah, it was quite a frank and open um, show about my mental health journey, a lot of what I've told you today, um, you know, with some jokes in there, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, but just um, the aim of it was to say, look, this happened to me, this could happen to anyone. Uh, you know, it's okay to talk about these things and, and in hindsight, again, to look back and reflect and look at how ridiculous uh these things that I was doing was, uh, but saying that you know, it's okay to laugh with me at what I was doing because I'm okay talking about it, you know, rather than saying it's okay to laugh at people with mental health because that was never the, yeah. you know, the, the issues of what yeah, I was trying to do. Yeah, yourself is fine. Yeah, isn't it? it's, uh, yeah. It's, and of course, so you did that show at Edinburgh, presumably. You did an Edinburgh run with it, or? I did, yeah, uh, and uh, I was wowed by the interest um, because I only, only did it for a two-week run, um, and you know there was a, a faction of the NHS Scotland came to see the show, um, and I got invited back up to Edinburgh to do a special show for um, students and some mental health professionals, and also people who actually did have some mental health issues uh, came to the show and did a Q and A afterwards. Um, uh, and yeah, it uh, it was much more successful than a, than I even envisaged because, stupidly, what I didn't realise was that, of course, anyone who's had similar uh, issues um, or mental health problems in general will come and see the show and then want to talk to me afterwards. Yeah. And I suddenly realised 
wow, this is actually a really good thing that I'm doing without like trying to sound like, um, oh, look at me. Uh, because I realized that this, these issues are more common than people think. Because yeah. again, back then, you know, it's only nine years ago, but it was a bit, still a bit more of a taboo subject in comedy uh, to talk about on stage. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying I was one of the first, but <laughs> I know Ruby Wax uh, had done um, some mental health shows about a year or so before. Yeah. But again, it wasn't really a common place for a comedian to talk about mental health yeah, at I mean, an Edinburgh show. It can still even now be, unless the whole show is about it, if you bring the subject up as part of a, a broader set, I talk about it for about three minutes in a 20-minute set, if that. And and the moment I mention it, quite often in the room, you'll feel a sudden change of, almost a change of temperature, a change of energy, until people know that you, it's not going to be, I don't know, horrifically upsetting. Or once they once they trust you enough with it, you can get they quickly kind of warm back up to it. But I, I, very occasionally, I notice a real change of dynamic in the room as soon as you say, right, you know, I'm going to talk about my mental health for a minute, because people suddenly wonder if you're going to, get, I don't know, if you're going to get preachy, if you're going to overshare, or how can this be funny? Or yeah, you can get it's... back on track. But if you're doing a whole show about it, I suppose there could be a fear from people who maybe don't go to live comedy very often of how, how on earth is someone going to talk for presumably mm. an hour about yeah. such a profound issue and make it funny. Um, yeah. It's a real, I suppose it's a testament to your craft as a comic that you're able to do that as well, which is, you know, it's very easy to go on and do dick jokes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, that's the thing. It was, it was very worrying actually, because I, mm. I couldn't get the show to work to the way that I wanted it for a very long time. Mm. Um, and then, thankfully, it just came together because um, obviously it's a very heavy subject matter. Hmm. Uh, and the first like ten minutes, I had to do well. Not, I don't know, I had to do, but I decided to do uh, some light, lighter stuff to get people. You know, like the, the trailers, if you were, hmm. or like uh, you know, you don't want to hit them hard straight away. Uh, and then, based off the first ten minutes or so, just said, right, okay, so we've done the funny stuff. Hmm. <laughs> Now, for the next half an hour, 40 minutes, we need to just strap in, but don't worry, there's some comedy gold at the end. Yeah. Uh, and just basically say, we're going to get through this story uh, and just say, there will be some laughs, but at times you might be going, okay, is this funny anymore? Yeah. You know, and I think it was just like the disclaimer at the start. Yeah. You know, and, and like, again, some people who would just come to the show who weren't sure it was about were a little bit like, okay. Yeah. Uh, but other people, like, you know, were just fascinated, um, edge of the seat stuff. Uh, especially some of the health professionals, and 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 they did relate very much to the uh, shitting in the towel story. Funny enough, yeah, Sur- uh, surprisingly, for them, it probably won't be that rare. Yes, <laughs> something like that happens. But I mean, I don't know if you've um, read Adam Kay's or seen Adam Kay's stuff from when he was an NHS doctor. But some of the stuff in there is both eye-opening and eye-watering, really. Um, for the <laughs> NHS have to go through it's it's amazing. But um, no, I suppose I think the thing with that show, like I say, if you're doing an hour-long show, it's that thing of comedically having the the kind of experience, the knowledge to throw in enough palate cleansers, if you like, to just break the mood up now and again without undermining the overall kind of theme, I suppose. But um, what obviously you had people talk to you, etc. What sort of reactions? Did you get any particular reactions that stuck with you from individuals or any of those kind of conversations? Uh, well, um, because since doing that show, um, again, I've... Uh, had mental health issues since, mm-hmm. uh, and like moments of depression, uh, 
you know, this could be a whole nother podcast, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I came off social media for a good time and I lost a few contacts. Mm. Uh, but I do remember this is one particular couple whose my, my heart really went out to them. Uh, they lost their son to suicide mm. um, through, of course, him having mental health problems. And they came to see the show. They'd contacted me beforehand to say that, like, you know, they'd, they'd really like to come and see the show because their son had suffered with depression and unfortunately took his own life. Uh, and, you know, there was a special event coming up for him. I think I think they were Lancashire-based. Uh, and, you know, we had a long chat afterwards and they were saying that, like, how... Um, uh, cathartic you know it was mm. to, to like hear my story and uh, you know and of course we'd never met before we'd only just uh, corresponded over email previous to that but it was just a moment of thinking wow this you know comedy uh, or storytelling of, of such a personal story can be so powerful mm. in its way when, when you got that message in advance did you feel a sense of pressure about oh yeah show. yeah certainly that, that, that strikes me as something i'd be going oh fuck it needs to be needs to be bang on today it needs everything needs to be right kind of thing and and, and that can be although they would have it blessed them for for telling you it might have for me i'd have been like i'd rather you just told me afterwards but mm. um yeah it, it yeah. must be it must be nice is the wrong word but it must be um reassuring i don't know if that's the right word either to to have that kind of feedback from people whose lives have been so deeply affected by stuff like this yeah well i mean again um nine years ago i suppose it, it still wasn't a thing that was talked about as much as it is now yeah. and i think it is getting better certainly because i mean these podcasts exist and mm. uh so many books and like uh, celebrities talking about it uh you know the bbc it's it's mentioned almost all the time isn't it and there's adverts yeah, yeah. and billboards so like check your mental health etc so uh, the support network, you know, wasn't as strong then. Uh, you know, male suicide especially is still a massive problem. Mm. Um, you know, it, so anything to reach out. In fact, there's a there's a there's a group um, which again ten year ten years ago probably. I keep saying ten years ago as if it's like all of a sudden it changed. It's not. I didn't change anything. No, <laughs> there has been a lot of change in that decade. That's, yeah. that's key yeah. to, to highlight. Yeah, uh, but um, there's a local group been set up by. Uh, men in Northwich, my hometown, which is like a walking and talking group. They had their first night last night, which I couldn't make it to, but they just said that, like, you know, one of these guys who, like, uh, when you meet him, is a very, well, I wouldn't say stereotypical, but he's like, um, uh, he's, a, he's a joiner, an electrician, I think. A bloke's bloke. Uh, yeah, he's a bloke's bloke. Yeah. And then um, he just posted, right, I want to do this uh, walking and talking group because us men don't talk about shit, do we, that, that we mm. really uh, need to. So let's do it. And hats off to him because... Um, there just needs to be more of that. Yeah, there's, there's uh, a lot. There's a lot of stuff happening in my area. There's a group heading more. I mean, they're getting wider and wider over the company called Andy's Man Club. They meet every Monday night at various branches, and you know, and typically the the, the guys that run those are you know, like you would say, blokes, blokes, and and I think it's great if you can go to if you've not got a guy in a, with a clipboard and a you know and a yeah. shirt and a tie on. <laughs> Was, laminated yeah exactly that kind of thing yeah. and, and you know and the, and doesn't use jargon if it's just people saying you know what, what, what's wrong with you you know what's what's wrong today what are you feeling today how's it how's life what's what's shit about life what's good about life and having a proper conversation and you know and then there's biscuits then that's i think if it saves one life it's worth it isn't it and, and i know that it does um it's great but i, do, I genuinely think that there's a uh, something to be said about 
people in our world. Because the one thing I've so I've, I've only been doing comedy since uh, late twenty eighteen, um, and and the, probably the apart from the the common themes about people's mental health, the other thing that co- comes up is people saying, "I couldn't do what you do," I, you know, I don't know how you do it, and sort of a sense of from people from the muggles who don't do comedy that sort of feeling of somehow that it takes real balls to go on stage. It does, but the flip side for us is we do it because it gives us something that we don't get anywhere else. Yeah. Um, I think it's great that those people who feel that way see people on stage or out in the media talking about those issues. Because the worst thing that anyone ever said to me when I started suffering from depression was, you know, almost a, what have you got to be depressed about? I don't understand. Mm. You've got a wife, you've got kids, you've got a job, you've got this, you've got that. You have, everything seems to be going around in your life. Why have you got to be depressed? As if depression is solely a response to your environment and not yeah. a medical issue. So if you can see someone, I mean, Rob Beckett was in the news. I think in his book, he talks about having had depression in the past. People who are on the telly, you know, high profile, who seem to have it all, admitting that they've had issues in the past as well. It does just chip away at normalising things and eventually they cease to be mystical or taboo or or whatever. So, you know, without blowing smoke up your ass, I think it's superb that you had, you, you took what was a really um, kind of profound low in your life and turned it on its head and did some good with it. I mean, and and, and did it in the field that you obviously love to perform in as well. It's It's really impressive that, You've done that, and now you know what 14, 13, 14 years after that event, while you've still got your issues, you're still going strong, even after COVID. You're back performing again now, you're performing last night. So, oh, yeah, I mean, I've tried to quit several times, but it won't let me. <laughs> Just when you got that's, out, it dragged you back in. Well, that's <laughs> it. The brain, the brain convinces uh, you know, because almost every day, uh, well, not almost every day, but it can be, you know, I still have very bad days now and again, is that, uh, the voice i don't hear voices i was hearing voices when i was psychotic but yeah. <laughs> you know that that internal voice says uh well you know you've been doing comedy so long um you're not that you're not you're not doing the the gigs that you should be doing you know or you're not at the level that you should be and why why aren't you producing more of this and then you convince yourself that oh maybe i should get a different job yeah. but then the fake imposter syndrome yeah, sort of situation yeah but then you find the love again and you have a great gig and you're talking about that uh thing about saying that oh I couldn't do what you do and stuff but I do remember as well when I was a very low after uh the psychosis had worn off and I was full-on depressed but I was managing to to go back to the day hospital uh back in this is back in 2008 I remember because I hadn't gigged for about I don't know four or five months and that's the longest I hadn't gigged for five years maybe uh I just remember walking down the street and thinking I really miss that euphoria yeah. of like when you storm a gig, uh, you know, just that that adulation of the crowd that, you know, it's it, again, it's not the reason that you, you you do it. I know the reason I do it now, which I'll tell you in a moment, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's a perk. Nice French benefit, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's that, it's that uh, validation of like, okay, right, I, what I'm saying is worth something and it's making people happy and appreciative. So therefore, I am correct in my thinking that I should be doing this stand-up comedy malarkey uh what made me realize it was what I was doing uh, sorry what made me realize that I was doing why I was doing it was and what you forget sometimes is when someone comes up to you usually after one of your solo shows rather than 
your stand-up show. Uh, and again, it's mental health related. And then this guy, random guy, who got dragged in to see one of my solo shows by like a friend of mine, mutual friend, a while back. He just said to me afterwards, tell you what, mate, uh, I wasn't going to come to this tonight. I only got like dragged in five minutes before. And uh, do you know what? I've had one of the best nights in a long time because I've got so many problems going on right now. And you just made me forget about everything for an hour. And I think really that is what the key is to what, you know, a stand-up comedian should be. <laughs> Escapism. It, yes, exactly. But on the other, obviously, side of it, if you're talking about mental health problems, again, you're still getting away from uh, the, the mundanity, but at least you're talking about it and taking people on your journey. Because yeah. if you're talking about mental health and your own mental health, it's obviously your own individual journey, and that's still what makes it a great thing. That's really nice. To, it's, a, it's a nice kind of way to tie it all up, I suppose. Because so, so I mean, we're getting towards uh, towards sort of being out of time anyway. So, I. <clears throat> I've asked this question in every episode and it's always sort of the, the the start of wrapping things up. If you could, if I could wave a magic wand now, Kevin, and take away all of your history of mental health problems, take away the fact that you were you know, spent three weeks in the hospital and, and mental health ward, the ongoing sort of issues of depression and all of that. If I could take all of that away and guarantee it stays away for the future, but the price you had to pay was that you never performed stand up again. Is that a deal you'd take? Absolutely not. <laughs> There's only been one person who's ever said yes, and it knocked me on my ass because I'd had a run of about 20 episodes where everyone had said no. So why not? Uh, well, again, this might sound cliche, but when, when you know, when when I really want to, when I'm <laughs> when I'm in the in the in the good zone of going right, I'm going to do this gig and it's going to be great. It's it makes it you know it makes me feel alive, it makes me feel validated. Uh, the only other thing, and again, that, I know we're running out of time, but the only other thing that's made me feel like that is wrestling. Uh, that's nothing to do with the bisexuality, but I've also done some uh, <laughs> professional wrestling training. Uh, had one actual match as well in front of a crowd. So in a similar way. Like a, a WWE style wrestling. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, because in that moment when you're, you're, when you're on stage uh, or in the wrestling ring, uh, you know, and you're completely focused on that job in hand, that's the only thing that really matters, you know, and you're focused on entertaining, uh, being in that moment and delivering the best product that you possibly can. Um, so, yes, I've lost my train of thought, but there you go. <laughs> no, you throw me off with the whole wrestling thing. I would, Sorry, I, mean, I shouldn't have mentioned that earlier. <laughs> having seen what you look like, Kevin, although we've never actually physically met, I would never have pegged you down. Maybe a wrestling fan, but not as a potential uh, brawler. Oh well, you know, I, uh, I could do with being a bit bigger for the, for the aesthetics, but um, you know, you're never too uh, small or big to wrestle. Yeah, the bigger they are, the harder they fall, kind of thing. Listen, yeah. Kevin. So, uh, what what have you got in the pipeline? Anything that you want to plug? Anything going forward? Uh, well, I've got my own comedy club in Northwich in Cheshire, which uh, is on tomorrow night. Uh, this podcast, of course, then um, will be. Going out probably after that, will it? <laughs> yeah, it will be, yeah. But yeah. It's, yeah, it's it a third, regular night, though. It's the third Thursday of every month at the moment at the Salty Dog in Northwich. Uh, I host it, and we always have a great lineup. Um, but also, my double black with my wife, your dad's mum, is going to Leicester Comedy Festival again in February. Possibly going to London for a few dates, but uh, we're already talking about taking it to Edinburgh uh, next year because we did do a run. A brief on the five days we got offered last minute 
this year, which went great at the Gilded Balloon. Uh, but we're going up again. Okay. Fingers crossed in August 2022. So uh, your dad's mum, we're out there on Facebook and Twitter. And yeah, Instagram. I shall put yeah. some links on with it. And uh, that's fantastic. And congratulations on, on getting married. Married life treating you okay before you go? Oh, yes. Uh, it's the best thing. Yes. Bex is a wonderful, wonderful human. And, uh, you know. And you've got that now on record as well. <laughs> yes, yes. We, we both, uh, no, she is an absolute uh, delight. Uh, especially, she does help when I have my bad days. And uh, I think we summed it up the other night that uh, she, um, she gets frustrated. Uh, she's not the best organiser in the world. And I help her with that and I keep her calm. Whereas uh, she keeps my happiness and joy levels up. So, you know, we compliment each other on that. And then we also try and write some really funny, funny jokes. So that's helpful. <laughs> Superb. Listen, Kevin, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I'm, I'm really grateful that you took the time to speak to me. Uh, I hope you stay well. And uh, hopefully we'll actually get to meet in the flesh at some point and get together. That'd be good. That'd be great. Nice Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye bye. So there you go, that was Kev, uh, Kevin Dewsbury. A really good episode, I think. Uh, he's a lovely guy to talk to. Um, very open, very honest, um, and, and very interesting, I think. Um, so do go and uh, look up his his stuff online. I will link to his website, etc., in the, in the, uh, the blurb. And uh, if you like the episode, let me know what you think. If you've got any suggestions for people that you'd like to hear from, let me know what you think. Um, and please do share, subscribe, like, Leave a review, whatever else you can do to help me grow the podcast. That'd be great. Thanks very much, and you'll hear from me soon. Cheers. Bye. Sparks of Madness is a Gag and Bowman comedy production.